Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. You know spring is here when you're hanging laundry out on the clothesline. Of course, there's still two feet of snow, but damn it, it's sunny out and above freezing, and I'm hanging laundry today. Yeah, Buddy's standing by my desk, staring at the side of my head, and occasionally letting out a big sigh. He knows the sun is out, and I told you this would happen. That's another reason I love New England, because we get to feel the rhythm of the planet. We get to be reborn every year. You know, my friends, you never realize how much bending over and reaching life entails until you pull something in your back. Yeah, that's right. I spent the last two weeks grimacing from back pain, not being able to put my socks on. It was the Saturday after I came back from Europe, just after we last talked, and we got another 10 inches of snow at my house. It was a deep powder And poor Buddy was up to his armpits, or maybe leg pits. I don't know. What do you say on a dog? Not sure. Anyhow, Buddy was post-holing in the front yard, so he was having a hard time going potty. And when that happens, the dog just does his business a foot off the front porch, which is a little nasty in civilized society. So I decided to dig him a nice long pathway so that he could get out into the yard. And somewhere along the line, I felt a twinge in my back, but I didn't think much of it. And later, I went to the gym, not being the kind of person who takes a hint very well, and I figured I could spin a little, but found out that I could not. And instead, I sat in the hot tub for a while, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but probably wasn't, because I ended up not being able to walk without crutches by the end of the day. And by Wednesday, I was feeling a little bit better. So I decided it would be a bonza idea to go for an easy run outside to break my cabin fever. And that turned out to be a bad decision. Then it kept snowing, so yeah, you know, I had to keep shoveling. And here we are two weeks later, and I am beginning to be able to put my shoes and socks on without crying out in pain. But I'm going to put a positive spin on it. I'm optimizing my weight loss opportunity. Here's how that works. Let's say I'm fit. I'm 180 pounds, and I'm running eight-minute miles, and I'm training, but I'm only burning 100 to 120 calories a mile, according to that running magazine. You know the one I'm talking about. But as I continue not to train, lose my fitness, and get out of shape, I can burn 30% more calories per mile. Yeah, absolutely. At 200 pounds and a 10-minute mile, I'm burning more than 200 calories a mile. Now that's a strategic advantage. I'm optimizing my weight loss. It's really very strategic. Yeah, so this whole (laughs) 12 marathons in 12 months is coming to a close with me hanging on by a shoestring. I went to see Eric Derrico in Boston, my massage therapist friend, uh, to see if he could get me back on the road. You may remember Eric as the guest on the Mary McManus episode a few years ago, one of our early episodes. He declined to work on my back, but he worked on the ankle and tried to open up my psoas to relieve some of the pressure on my back. I haven't got much training in with all this. I did manage to get a long walk-in down in Atlanta this week, and even that seemed to be a bad idea. I got 45 minutes in the pool last night running, pool running, and I feel good today, so I think I'm through it, which gives me couple more pool runs before I line up for the Umstead Trail Marathon next week. God help me. Then I get a month and a half off to see if I can get vertical for Boston. Then I am taking a hard look at my overall fitness. I need to build some base and become a lot less fragile. Maybe get back on the bike, do some triathlons, build up some strength. If I've learned anything from this year, it is the importance of base fitness. I would not embark on another one of these multi-marathon type programs without A, B, 
being extremely fit in my core, and B, having an enormous base mileage to fall back on. So today, we have a long chat with Scott Forrester about the importance of holistic strength and the mind-body connection and how it can help you stay strong into your old age. That's something I need. In section one, I'm going to talk about what we can learn from the battles of history. Yeah, it's the Discovery Channel time, I guess, huh? In section two, I'm going to consider the question, what would be your advice to a new beginning marathoner? The clothes, sweet with the perfume of detergent, flap in the low breeze. Springbirds chirp tentatively in the trees, picking at the new buds. The world shakes off its gilded torpor and looks to a new day. We strike forth, hardened by the knowledge of a transient life, to seize our world while we can. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Okay, there's a bit of a departure here. This piece is called Winning with a Small Army. Applying lessons from battles past to your life. Throughout history, there are stories of great battles where a much smaller force has won out against all odds and triumphed over a much larger force. How is this possible? How can an army that is outnumbered 5 to 1 or 10 to 1 or even 100 to 1 prevail? What can we learn from it? The first lesson you can learn is the importance of leadership. Leaders emerge at critical times to make a difference. Like any human endeavor, the top reason any large or small army wins is leadership. They believe that they can win. It is that leader who believes the impossible against long odds and believes to such an extent that their forces will rally behind them. That is the basis of all victories. Sometimes there isn't a choice. The army is surrounded and outnumbered in a hostile country, and all the generals are tricked into a parley and eliminated. This happened once to 10,000 Greek mercenaries. There was no retreat. There was no option of surrender. The situation appeared hopeless. Then they elected one of their number, Xenophon, as the new leader, and he led the 10,000 on a long march through Persia and back to Europe the whole time being pursued by a larger force. The skillful leader converts that siege mentality into an esprit de corps. We're all we've got. We're in this together. So what are we going to do about it? A leader emerges that uses that hopelessness and turns it into positive energy. That leader asks different questions. Instead of asking, how did we get into this mess? They ask, what about this situation can we use to our advantage, and how do we win? Whether in a war, or business, or in community, good leaders can turn anything around. They can convert a defeated and broken mob into a unified and effective force. Once the leadership is in place, what can they do to then gain advantage in an outnumbered situation? What are the possible advantages when you're outnumbered 100 to 1? What can be used to capitalize on a smaller army's strength and the larger army's weaknesses? Potentially, not all-inclusive, but potentially you have advantages in geography, advantages in technology, advantages in strategy and tactical leadership, and advantages in command and control and discipline. So why do we care here? Any battle where the smaller force has prevailed, will have some or all of these elements. Perhaps most famously used is the advantage of geography. Think of the 300 Spartans standing at the choke point of Thermopylae, or the Minutemen on top of Bunker Hill in Boston. If the smaller force can choose the ground on which to fight, the enemy's strength in numbers can not just be mitigated, but turn into a weakness. For example, if you could lure that larger force into a valley, this would channel their advantage of force and eliminate the larger army's ability to create a larger front. 
On this well-chosen ground, your force can attack from the higher ground at the sides of the valley on the enemy's flanks. This single tactic was how Hannibal destroyed more than one Roman army. It's even better if the valley runs into a swamp or is in a dense forest. That's how the Goths and the Germans beat the technically superior Roman legions. The point is that by denying the opposing force their strength, they are forced to meet your strength with their weakness, and a smaller force can beat a larger force. The general that can choose the ground has a distinct advantage. So why do you care? In your life, you have situations where you compete with people and organizations. It's not just in sales. Everyone competes. In these situations, you want to find the equivalent of choosing the ground. For you, the ground may be the agenda in a meeting, or the place or timing of a meeting, or even the people invited to the meeting. You can control or influence the event in such a way that it plays to your strengths. On the other side of the coin, you can learn to develop a sense of when you're walking into a trap. These are situations where someone else has chosen the ground, and you will be at a disadvantage. It might be a competitor or an agenda item. Be slow to take that offered bait because it usually is a trap. If history tells us anything, it's that you need to pick your battle spots. People have a tendency to be impatient, and they want to get to the fight. If someone else has chosen the ground, you should refuse to fight. This may mean declining that meeting or telling a customer no until you can choose the ground. And this is your key takeaway. You can always refuse to fight. You don't have to fight. It takes a good general to refuse to give battle and to wait patiently until the ground is in his or her favor. This is very applicable to life. You know you have those situations where your gut is telling you it's a setup and you're walking into a trap. There's no reason you can't say, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm not going to play along. Just by doing that, you change the ground and force them to come to you. How can technology play a role in helping a smaller force defeat a larger force? Throughout history, the army with the technology advantage, from Assyrian chariots to Mongol compound bows, they've had an advantage. If you have that technology with a first mover advantage, and you find a way to deploy it tactically so that it is a strength or negates an enemy strength, you can win. This is why businesses are so enamored with new technologies. These new technologies can give the first movers, the people and companies who use them first or deploy them uniquely, a competitive advantage. Competitive advantage is jargon for more customers and higher profits than their direct competitors. It's not just innovation in specific technologies like stronger steel in your sword or faster breeds of horses. It can be an innovation in a process like the Greek phalanx or Alexander's cavalry tactics that create the advantage. The important lesson to learn from innovation is that it's only a temporary advantage. The enemy will learn. Technology boundaries are porous and competitive differentiation through innovation only lasts until the technology or innovation becomes widely adopted. That's why companies are always looking for new innovation. The other lesson is that innovation can be risky as well. Not all innovation is good or applicable to competitive advantage. The best in class have it built into their culture to continuously test innovations and quickly deploy those that prove to be innovative and useful. In your life, you need to have that same culture. You need to be able to embrace innovations and technologies in a way that reduces the risk to you, but quickly lets you gain those advantages when you find them. So don't be afraid to try new things and fail, but be prepared to shift your approach when those innovations prove worthwhile. What about the advantage produced by strategy and tactics. I mean, we already talked about leadership, which is the necessary underpinning of any success, but what about tactics? Tactics are extremely powerful, if only for the fact that so few people and companies understand and use them. Alexander defeated larger armies with essentially the same tactic every time. He'd use a cavalry feint to the right and then cut back into the opposing center, 
Since the center is where the opposing king is, this caused surprise and chaos and cut off the head of the opposing force. And once Darius took flight, the rest of his army crumbled from the center, and the rest, as they say, is history. Rommel and Napoleon both used a flanking tactic with a mobile force to rout larger armies. A simple tactic of finding the opposing enemy's flank and rolling around it with force was successful time after time, until their opponents learned to expect the tactic and counter them. There's nothing tremendously magical about these tactics, but the way they are executed focuses the army's strength where it could be effective and create a weakness. The larger army's line is broken, and their leadership is forced to react. You have the initiative. Why do you care? Most real-world engagements are done with very little consideration of tactics. Most business engagements default to the equivalent tactic of a frontal assault. If you take away only one thing from this discussion, it should be that a frontal assault is the most expensive way to approach a problem. Sun Tzu said that you should only employ a frontal assault when you have a 3-to-1 advantage, at least a 3-to-1 advantage, and that's with all other things being equal. It's a poor tactician that attacks head-on in any personal or business engagement. You need to survey the lines of the opposing force and look for their strong points and their weak points. You focus your strength where they are weak, and this is typically a version of a flanking tactic. In the business world, this could mean changing a selection criteria, or changing an agenda, introducing a challenge at the right time, or changing the timing of the process. Sun Tzu always counseled that the good general will demonstrate on all fronts an attack where the opponent is weak. What this means is that your opponent will know that you want to attack with your strength, and they will be expecting it. To throw them off balance, you feint to other places, and when they react to those feints, you launch your attack at the weak points. Keep feinting along a broad front and make them react. Once you've got them reacting, you control the battle or the business deal. Your takeaway here is to study tactics and use them as leverage to win your personal battles. Understand the favored tactics of your enemy. Use tactics to your advantage, and don't be predictable. What about command and control and discipline? How do you make sure that you win when you're trapped in the fog of war? You do this with discipline. The classic Roman legion would routinely beat larger barbarian forces by simply being disciplined. Shoulder to shoulder with shields and short-stabbing swords, they would calmly let the undisciplined barbarian forces break around them like a rock in the middle of a stream. They had smaller forces, but they had a professional army with practiced warfare techniques. The opposing forces were ill-equipped and untrained farmers. A smaller veteran force can use their discipline and experience to win. How does this apply to your life? It is the same practice and drilling of basic skills, whether they're personal skills or business skills, like giving presentations and answering those top 10 hard questions. These should be practiced until they are automatic and effective responses. Discipline itself will not guarantee a win, but without discipline, you're sure to lose. When the blood starts to fly in the heat of battle, when your heart rate soars, in the moment of truth, you want your discipline to take over, not your fight-or-flight response. This has been a long piece, so let's wrap it up. There's no silver bullet here. It's a body of knowledge that you need to acquire throughout life. You need to understand the art of the possible so that when you see the patterns of the battles in your life unfold, you know what your options are. Because even if you're trapped and outnumbered, you are the general of your life. Let me leave you with a story. After the Roman conquest of Britain, there was a tribe that aligned with Rome called the called the Iceni. Prasitagus was the king of the Iceni, and his queen was Boudica. When Prasitagus died, the Roman governor, Suetonius, decided that the Iceni didn't need their kingdom anymore, and he marched in, beat Boudica, raped her daughters, chucked out all the nobility, and annexed the Iceni lands. Yeah, Suetonius was a bit of a jerk. Boudica 
raised an army of a hundred thousand Britons and began laying waste to all the Roman cities on the island. Suetonius was forced to face the British army of 100,000 pissed-off Celts with 1,200 legionnaires, and he won the battle. How did he do it? Well, he chose the ground on which to fight. He put his flank up against Hadrian's wall and made Boudicca's army come to him. He burnt the Roman stores so that Boudicca's force was starving and exhausted going into the battle. His men were few, but they were a veteran and disciplined fighting force. The undisciplined and exhausted Britons broke against his strength, and Boudicca's army was slaughtered. It's valuable to understand the history of war. Read your Sun Tzu, your Julius Caesar, your Machiavelli. Humans haven't changed in 7,000 years, and the lessons are all current. And now for today's featured interview. All right. Scott Forrester, how are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. So I appreciate your patience, right? I've had a couple of weeks now that have been like being inside a high-speed washing machine. So... Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your sticking with me. I imagine on the other end, you must say, who is this jerk who can't respond to emails and keeps changing times and that sort of thing? Not at all. But, uh, yeah, you're having this on that show here. Yeah. So I appreciate your patience because it's, it's it, what you're, what you're doing, what your, uh, your calling is here is very important to me, especially at my age, right? And it's some of the things that I'm struggling with is how to step back from being, you know, so competitive. That um you know I'm in that cycle and I have been for the last 20 years, which is train until you break something, <laughs> recover, and then train until you break something again, right? And just yeah. do that ad infinitum. And and I can't imagine that's the best way to to promote running till I'm 100, right? Yeah, that's, that might not be <laughs> the best approach. So that's that's what you're doing, right? You're 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 setting up a practice to help people figure out how to run forever, or how to do their endurance sports, or how to be healthy forever. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Give us the two hundred words or less on uh, on what you're doing. Okay. We have the the tools to actually help people fine tune their their running. If you've been to our website, one of the projects we're working on right now is uh, a duplication on DVD of a weekend workshop we did. So that'll be maybe eight hours of material on DVD. So we can work with anybody. And uh, we like working with student athletes or triathletes. We work with all kinds of people. The techniques that we use will help anybody, no matter what level you are, and they'll help you at an individual level. What we did in the workshop was we started out videoing every every participant. And then we went into some, actually, discussion of biomechanical principles. And we showed a video of various uh, elite runners and non-elite runners and so on. And then we went into our movement lessons, and we went back and forth between lessons and discussion and so on. And then eventually at the end of the workshop, at that point we let them see their own videos after absorbing all this knowledge from both theoretical and, and feeling it in their bodies in the lessons that we did. And then they got to they got to see what was the missing piece in their own running and review the lesson that was most appropriate to them. Then we did another video, went full circle, and, and there was tremendous improvement, and they all knew why they improved and exactly what was going on there. So that's one of the projects that we're doing is trying to replicate that whole multimodal process, share that with a lot more people. What you're talking about here is basically uh, form, right? Yeah. So, so breaking down people's forms and, and we're talking about running. It's interesting because it's one of the things I get a lot of interest in whenever I'm talking about form and what good form is. And I can't claim to have perfect form, but I work at it, right? right. And it's one of those things that's very good for video because you may think that you have good form. Um, but when you video it and you go through the iteration, uh, you can see where the, where the problems are. And you know, one of the things I noticed recently, you know, uh, uh, my peers, people, you know, 50 years old or so that have been, you know, racing for the last 20, 30 years, most of them run with some sort of limp in their stride. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. What that is is a poor connection to the ground. 
not an ideal use of the skeleton, and, and we deal with that quite a bit. Yeah. So where do you where do you start people? I mean, one of the things that are uh, whenever I do these um, sort of talk people through form, what I'll do is I'll start at the bottom with the feet and work my way up. Tell them how to run. I mean, how do you describe it? Uh, okay, so what we did in our workshop, if I were working with an individual, I'd probably do a video and then see exactly you know what they they needed. Anytime you improve your running form in terms of general principles. Uh, you're going to eliminate a lot of a lot of problems. What, what was your question again? I, I kind of lost it. So, I mean, if you, if you look at uh, chi running or pose running or any of the stuff that that we typically think about as form, you're thinking about you know leaning at the ankles, keeping an upright form, hands high, hips forward, right, landing on the forefoot, short, rapid steps, all that stuff, right? Right. And uh, so I start. Some of my basic ideas there are. General posture and alignment. Sometimes I use the, the word active because that describes active posture, running posture. Anyway, the general alignment and posture, I would start with that probably. And then I like to start running basically from the core and not with the legs and, and, and so on. So I work a lot with pelvic rotation, but also how to, how to integrate and link that with the chest and so on. So we had, we had something that's very common. I see this. A lot of times with uh, women runners, but anybody can do it. And I saw somebody running uh, in our workshop that I'm referring to here with uh, both hands, arms uh, bent about 90 degrees. Both hands are kind of locked to the torso. And you're going back and forth, back and forth with that torso, rotating on the hips, but there's really none of the power of the back and the rest of the spine added to the running. And so the arms are actually locked to the torso. The torso is going side to side. It's more like a waddle. Yep. So we work with integrating that, the use of the arms, the use of the back, the use of the pelvis, and the use of the core so that so that you're flowing forward. The arms are moving somewhat of the diagonal, but more or less front and back rather, right. than, rather than that non-differentiated uh, movement of the pelvis, or excuse me, of the entire torso rotating back and forth locked with the arms. Have you seen that sideways thing where the arms really don't come into play? So the learning point is here, if you're out running and you look at what you're doing with your arms, if they're going sort of swaying side to side or, you know, rotating like a barrel, yeah, then, exactly. then you've got problems because they should be sort of high and silent um, and going front to back. Front to back, more or less, yeah. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good tip. Yeah. Because people always talk about forefoot striking as, as like it's the only thing that form has to do. I find one of the real things that helps me is the belly button or the hips, right? So if I can push my hips forward, my belly button forward, like I'm being pulled on a, a leash, that tends to straighten up my shoulders and my arms and pull me into my core. Right. Sometimes there's too much uh, focus just on the foot strike and not on the integration of the entire running pattern. People people talk about foot uh, forefoot striking, but if you stay on your forefoot and don't bring the heel down, uh, you're asking for all kinds of problems. Overuse of the lower leg muscles, the calves, the Achilles. I mean, that's for sure on your Achilles to just stay on the forefoot and not and not bring the heel down. So it's really a whole integrated movement pattern rather than just getting stuck on one body part. That tends to be kind of the Western way of looking at things, especially if you deal with a lot of Medical issues or even physical therapy tends to be a little stuck on just looking at, at uh, one part of the body rather than integrating the entire motion. Yeah, Scott, you're absolutely right. I've been talking about this for the last six months or so with everybody is that we're looking for those silver bullets, and it's just a Western state of mind. Yeah. And there, there really are no silver bullets. It's, it's a holistic thing, right? So even if something simple like running form, yeah. it's not one thing. Right. It's and that's why the video is so important because you can tease out what the keystone things are and then and then holistically work on the form. Right. Awareness is, is is really important and you'll find that people run with their personalities too. So if you if you coach somebody you want to change their form, you're dealing with a personality too. It's funny you say that because um, when I train with people and I've trained with a lot of people over the years and some people don't have experience with maybe running, you know, 20 miles or more, you know, that's kind of at the limit. When they when they start to hit the wall and fade, I tell them to smile yeah. and, and to pull their chin up, and they think I'm nuts. 
Um, but if you do that, it changes your form. Absolutely. I found that when you get to that point, that's really the point you want to be at if you're training for endurance because there's the new ground. And when you get to that point, if you embrace that point and you say, this is what I'm here for, you know, this is part of it. And all of a sudden you'll find yourself running better than when you started. Now you don't have that extra energy to waste and all the bounciness and so on. And, and you wholeheartedly accept your experience and you're in that and you'll find that you'll just be amazed at uh, the difference that can make. The other place I've seen that emotion cause form is in hills, right? So again, if you're out in a marathon and you come to a big hill, you know, the, your, your typical mid-packer, you'll watch their form just slump before they even get to the hill. It's like a, it's like a physical frown, right? Yeah. Before they even get to the hill, they look at the hill and their form slumps. Yeah. And that's all mental. You're right. So, you know, to counter that, I guess, I guess in that case, the hill would be the trigger. To counter that, you'd have a, another strategy and you'd know when I get to this point, I'm going to do this, right? Right. And you would have developed that in your training program. So what are some other things that you work on with, uh, you know, old guys like me to keep them running? What we're really working with is awareness. I find that some days, I'm, I don't know how old you are, I'll be 64 in uh, April. I'm 50. Oh, you're 50, okay. Yeah. Well, I find that some days I get out of bed, I don't feel too bad. I could probably just start to run slowly. Other days I get out of bed and I think, wow, I can't even stand up straight. <laughs> Yeah, I don't approach running with uh, the running warm up with a, with a lot of you know just uh, isolated stretching and pulling as hard as you can and all that type of thing. I have some integrated movements that I do, and I basically kind of see what I need that day. So I can after being exposed to hundreds of lessons, you can kind of pick and choose some little things and customize your warm up as you go. Are you uh, are you sitting in a chair? I am. Okay, I, I could just give you a, a real brief lesson. I don't want to go into a 20 or 45 minute lesson, but I could just give you a little brief lesson and, uh, and see what difference awareness might make. Okay. Yeah. So you're sitting there, your feet are on the floor, I hope. Yeah. Okay. So can you, uh, imagine three lines on your feet? The first line will be more toward the outside of the foot. It will be between the and these lines are going to be on the bottom of your foot. So you're imagining yeah. the bottom of your foot. Yeah. And you will imagine a line between the, the small toe and the next toe and the center of the heel. Yeah. And then you'll imagine a line between the big toe and the next toe and the center of the heel. Yeah. And then imagine a line down through the middle of your foot and through the center of the heel. Yeah. So you've got these three lines they form kind of a triangle and you imagine that uh, say let's imagine that on the right okay so scoot to the edge of your chair yeah okay now the general assumption is that if you sit a long time your hip flexors are going to be shortened sure don't we know it yeah okay i didn't have you stand up first but that's all right begin to push down through your entire right foot first scoot to the edge of the chair sit up okay and lean forward a couple degrees as if you're in the position where you might run. Yeah. So you sit tall, lean forward, and begin to push down through that right foot, the entire right foot, using all three lines at once. Yeah. Okay. Push down, release, push down, release, push down, release, push down, release. Okay, and then take take a second to pause. Okay. Okay. And then, now push down a little bit harder and hold it. Okay. Push down as hard as you can. And do that several times. So you're going to hold it a few seconds, really push down hard. So when I'm doing this, I'm starting to engage my core. You're starting to engage your core, yeah. And, okay. And you're starting to engage your hip flexors. And so what am I doing? Is this a dynamic stretch? Or? No, 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 no. I'm just calling your awareness system. Okay. So you're, you're going to continue to do that movement and then stop. And if you want to, you can scoot back in the chair for a second relax. Okay. Then... Come back to the front of the chair again yeah. and do that same thing on the left side. Begin to push down through the foot a little bit. You came back to the same position at the edge of the chair. Sit tall. Lean forward slightly. Sure. If you lean forward slightly, you're going to be able to engage a lot better. And, uh, you know, your foot's flat on the floor, but not... Yeah, I got it. You have a 90-degree knee bend. Your foot is right under your knee. Yep. So Got it. 
So now do the same thing you did on the other side. Press down a little harder and hold it and do that four or five times. Okay. All right. So now this is giving me awareness of the whole chain. Right. So let me tell you what I what I felt with this integration, right? Okay, well, so, we're not quite done with the lesson here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Then I'll tell you. Okay, yeah, tell me after we, after we get done here. So now scoot forward again, and this time sit tall and, and bend forward maybe just a little bit more, enough that you know you can feel some engagement when you push down. Yep. Okay, so maybe you're bent forward just a little bit more, but you're holding your torso, a long spine, a long tall spine. Okay. Good running posture. Yeah, and now you're going to lean forward, and you're really going to push down on the left and then on the right. Hold your hands wherever they're comfortable, maybe in a running position, maybe not. And this time, when you do that, I want you to really notice what's happening in your waist. Yep. You shift back and forth. Now you're involving your whole person. Yep. From the foot to the head, really. Yep. Everything's going here. And you make that to be powerful in your pushing down you'll notice a strong interaction there in the waist. A strong shifting yep. from back to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right. Yep. And relax for a second. And then come to your feet. And you may find even that your hip flexors feel like they've lengthened a little bit. Okay. And if you were to go outside and, say, run up a short hill right now, you would notice that you had more power, or you might notice that you had more power to do that than before you started this awareness exercise here. Yeah, this is similar to something I would do with my massage therapist, where we would do this interactive stretching to get more length in the um, right. in the system. So yeah, there's a couple of reasons why this works, but let's just keep it with the awareness here and say you've drawn more awareness to your uh, hip extensors and your movement through your core here, and in fact, while you are sitting in a chair, you effectively lengthen your hip flexors. Which is good for those of us who do a lot of sitting in chairs. Yeah, you could you could do this. Yeah. So it's also a diagnostic, isn't it? Because I felt certain, I don't know, we'll call them hot spots, right? Yeah. Um, I'm coming off, like I said, a pretty rough uh, couple of weeks where I included running two marathons. Um, so I felt my uh, I felt the hot spot on my on my right quad and my left hamstring and my left uh, hip flexor, which makes uh, piriformis, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. So any any time you do an awareness exercise, you get to see how you compare to to the mirror there, so to speak, to to what's going on, what might go on, what's going on, how how you actually feel in doing the movement. Yeah, so it's sort of a self awareness, but it's also a good warm up, right? Uh, that would be a good warm up. Yeah, that would be one thing you could do. All right. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about connecting the body, and the mind. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I've always found that that's one of the really cool things about endurance sports, about running and biking, is it puts you in this receptive state to be able to link your body and mind. I mean, I can focus my body parts. I can do a full system diagnostics. I can control my breathing, my pace, all that stuff, right? It's quite a tight linkage once you get good at it. Exactly. Uh, I don't think you can really excel in uh, endurance sports without coming up with um, mental strategies and, and mental uh, enlightenments about how to do it. So what are some of the, the techniques that you use to get people to link their body and mind more holistically in their, in their fitness? Rather than link, uh, I would use the term body-mind unity because... We're familiar, I'm familiar with the statement that a mind without a body could not think. It would not be able to think in any sense of what we know as thinking. So without a link to the environment, which your body is really just part of your nervous system. Your eyes are part of your brain, really. I mean, they're feeding information to your brain all the time. And everything else, your muscles actually actually are the way we actually make a positive relationship to the environment by, through our movement. You know, I want to shake your hand, I want to wave hi, I want to give you a hug. Whatever I want to do, I, I do that with my muscles. I want to move something. Uh, so so really there isn't a, a link so much as a as a complete unity. Um, that's been something very important to me 
we, we deal in our training with, with things like spatial relationships. Let, let me make a quick statement here is that uh, really your, your entire self-image is embodied in, in all of your movement. Okay. So maybe for years you've been proud but not confident, so you hold your chest out real slow. Yeah. No, I mean, any, anything, any any anxiety is reflected in our movement. All movement is emotional. Yeah. We, we deal with all kinds of spatial relationships. How does your movement relate to the other people in the room? That really tells you something about yourself. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I, I'm, I'm a businessman in my real life, so I one of my things I do is I read rooms, right? Yeah. And you can, it'll take you 10 seconds to figure out who's in charge in a room. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. right. And yeah, you can, you can just read everybody. So I, I found a, a lesson that we did once involved a certain, uh, you would do a movement and then you would all do it together as a room. And I found I couldn't do it. That was, you know, I, I could begin to learn to do it, but it, it was a real weakness for me because I've always placed myself outside of that intricate relationship. Uh, we do things with spatial relationships like uh, changing your position in a room. I yep. found that challenging because, uh, you know, I'm always front and center. How do you see people using this to uh, to get better, right, to meet their goals, to, to get fit? What what's At what point does it become less theoretical and more practical? Oh, that's a wonderful question because that's my weakness. I tend to be too, <laughs> too, too theoretical, and that's why this method has been so good for me and Let's say that you are someone who always pushes yourself a little bit too hard. No, I don't know any, anybody like that. I, I think, go ahead. I think I think so many runners tend to be that way. <laughs> so so when you get injured, it, it it makes it difficult to recover because you want you say, well, I feel a little better, so I'm going to go back to my training. <laughs> I know I'll go to the gym after this. So <laughs> yeah, so so really with awareness. You would say, I feel a little bit, bit, bit better, so I'm going to begin to do some movements within the scope of what I can do. Right. I, I always overdo something when I'm learning it. So awareness helps with that. Awareness also helps you to fine-tune something. What we do in this method a lot is we remove a lot of the stress out of the learning approach. A lot of sports, when they do get coaching, are coached at kind of a fast pace. So you get a, right. a running drill, a golf drill or something, and you get done doing that golf drill, and you think, boy, I didn't get anything out of that. I just couldn't I couldn't figure that out. Right. They, they they skip the mastery step, right? They give you the instruction, then they move on to the next thing. Right, that kind of thing. Or maybe you didn't even get the first, yeah, you didn't get the first instruction, so you try to move on from that. Right, which is, is another mind-body thing, which goes back to almost the martial arts, where they will make you practice a movement until you master it. Right, and that's actually very good. That's that. That's wonderful. But yeah. we also do a lot of our lessons on the floor, on your back, on your side, on your stomach, and really slow the thing down so that maybe you took forty-five minutes with something, but you got it, or you got something out of it. You could return to it later in a year, maybe get more out of it. But you got something out of it because you know you weren't pressed right then to improve your golf swing. You were only impressed to. Focus on on your hip rotation or on on your relationship between your hips and your shoulders or something like that. So it really it really gets things slowed down enough to be a very worthwhile method for people who don't pick things up immediately. Uh, right. In the dancing world, for instance, somebody shows you something, you get it or you don't. You don't get it, you're out of here. You know, you're not moving yeah. up the professional ranks if you aren't somebody who can imitate immediately. But with dancers, I've found that they have this, this quick imitation, but they really don't have any awareness of the steps that they're going through to do it and how they can improve that. So slowing down is beneficial for anybody. So if you want to learn, slowing down is very beneficial. If you want to stay uh, more injury-free, being aware of what you actually are doing and what you need to do is very beneficial. Slowing down and being mindful. Slowing down and being mindful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Right. Because I find what I do a lot of times is I'll do the work, but I I will almost multitask, right? I won't think about the work while I'm doing it. Right. So, and that's that's bad too, because then you're not you're not being mindful. If you want to learn, you have to slow down and feel. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you've been uh, studying this methodology. You're almost ready to, to graduate and start your own practice. You know, what are the what are the top one, two, three things you've learned if you had to summarize? Well, those I, I suppose really uh, the top few things that I've learned. You, you could relate that to running, or you could just relate that to it. if you're asking me that question personally. Uh, this journey started with my injury when I fell off a roof and couldn't find the answers to my running problems. And I finally found a, a PT who was actually familiar with the Feldenkrais method and was a, was an ultra runner <coughs> and was a, pretty much a master teacher and was able to get me through that and started me on this road. So that would be one of the main things I've learned is how to keep yourself healthy and what the learning process is about. I, I actually can run farther now than when I was a kid, but I cannot run as fast as I could when I was 19. But, but I, but I can run farther now than I feel now. In terms of what it's meant to me personally is probably how to relate to people better, probably, uh, how to relate to myself a little bit more forgivingly and actually to integrate my actions into my thoughts. And if you can tell from talking to me, I tend to lot, want to think a, a lot about things. Actually, he, here's a thought here that I've learned is that Thinking is not thinking. Thinking is is truly thinking if it produces better action. Right. Yeah. So it's that translation. And and in that you'll find personal freedom. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you actually get out and begin to interact with the world and, and stop you know, stop wasting some of your thinking. Right. So uh so I'm gonna move us towards the exit here. Uh what uh Give us give us your website and your links and uh, and uh, all that stuff. All right, my website is transcendent-running.com, and there you'll find a link to our blog, and you can get our free ebook, The Runner's Body Mind, and we also have uh, some products there. We have our ideal warm up for older runners. You can contact us at Scott Run Four Hundred. All right. At yahoo.com. All right. Scott run 400 at yahoo.com. All right, Scott. Thanks for uh, staying with me and finally getting a chance to chat. It's very helpful. And uh, I'll let you go. All right. Okay. Well, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Beginner marathon tips. Looking at it from a different angle. I got asked a couple weeks ago by one of my friends what my tips would be for a first-time marathoner. I was stymied. There are potentially thousands of things I'd like to tell a first-timer. However, I realized that telling them a thousand things would be the wrong thing to do. We do a poor job of giving advice to new marathoners. Some poor soul made this mistake of asking the question on Facebook, and was inundated by the fire hose treatment of all the things they need to consider. It's overwhelming. It's too much. And it's just not useful. And it's potentially discouraging. How can we approach it differently? How can we give them the information they need when they need it? As I thought about this, I realized that much of the information and activity surrounding a marathon is time-phased. This means you don't need all the information on the first day. It should be possible for you to get the information in daily or weekly thematic chunks. Good coaches already do this by limiting the training plans that they reveal to the coach E at any point in time. In fact, one of the success factors of marathons is being able to focus on what you need to do today and not worry about the rest of it. In the personal success world, they call this chunking or breaking up information into usable parcels so that people can make continuous improvement and not get overwhelmed, discouraged, and give up. If you're a first-time marathoner, what do you need to do on day one? What do you really need to do on day one? Well, on day one, you pick a race. You first need to figure out what day one means. Finding day one is contingent on the race you're going to run. Step one is to look on one of those popular running calendars for an event you're going to tackle. I like MarathonGuide.com to look for races. Click through the race reviews. Avoid anything that sounds super difficult or scary. For a first-timer, I would provision at least a 20-week lead time. 
So look for an event five or six months away. This will give you plenty of physical and emotional training space to get ready. Most good marathons are clustered in the spring and the fall, so plan accordingly. Personal aside, my sister Jody announced recently she was going to run her first marathon this year, and I called her to ask what event she was planning. And I assumed it would be a marathon next fall, and I'd go support her. And she says, the Carmel Marathon on March 17th. <laughs> it runs in the family. I gave her my next piece of day one marathon advice, which is don't worry about the marathon or getting to the finish line. Focus on one thing, getting to the starting line. The race will take care of itself. Get to the starting line. At the end of day one, you've got your event chosen and you're registered and you have a goal to get to the starting line. That's enough for one day. So day two, what do you do? Day two, you find a coach. Day two is the day that you find your coach. You can train yourself, but it's worth the couple hundred bucks it's going to cost to get someone experienced to help you. There is so much you don't know. Why burden yourself by blundering around in the dark? Get some help. Save yourself emotional pain and physical issues. Get a coach. Go onto your favorite running social media group and ask for coaching recommendations for first-time marathons. You need a coach that is good for first-timers. You don't need a person who trains Olympians. So by the end of day two, you have a race, you have a goal, you have a coach. That's pretty good progress. Day three, get a plan. Sit with your coach and come up with a personalized plan that fits your ability, your goals, your aspirations, and your available time. Don't overreach. The first marathon should be fun. It should be a transformational experience. You should plan to train harder than you have ever trained, but at the end of it all, you should run without looking at your watch. In the first couple weeks, you'll need to buy some basic equipment too, some clothes, maybe some shoes, but I wouldn't buy new shoes until you've had your coach look at your stride. Don't go overboard. Until you get to the long, long runs, you really don't need anything special. So at the end of day three... You've got your race. You've got a goal. You've got a coach. You've got a plan. That's awesome. You might even have a new pair of shoes. That's super duper. Day four, tell the world. Yep, go ahead and tell the world. You have a goal race, a coach, a plan, so it's safe to go public. Let all your friends know what you're up to. Lock it in by bragging about it to your social media. Start a blog if that sort of thing appeals to you. Join Daily Mile or some other group on Facebook because you are going to need that community support. Don't worry, we love first-timers. We all get misty when we think about the challenge and the thrill of the first time. You'll also want to sit down with your family and review the plan. You're going to be spending some hours away from home pounding the pavement, and you need to set expectations appropriately. As your training ramps up, you won't have the energy to fight over who is going to take little Johnny to flute practice. So start working on a framework for how it's going to fit into your life. Now it's the end of the week. You've got a race. You've got a coach. You've got a goal. You've got a plan and a bunch of people to support you, including your family. And you know what? The rest is details. And what about all those other days? The rest of it, I think, you let come to you. In good time, as you progress through your training, the fueling and stretching and nutrition and how to tape your toenails and how to lube your private parts are all lessons that will come to you. Looking out over the course of your training, there will be other milestones that include moments of great learning. Like when you start hitting those long runs, you'll have a big chunk of new experiences and learning. And as you confront these situations and challenges, you can fall back on your coach, your plan, your social support system for help. After the long run, the next big chunk of stuff will come as the event approaches. You'll have to learn about tapering and the logistics surrounding the event. You'll get your travel plans and pick up your bib. This is an area you might want to do some pre-study on as the event looms, but again, there's nothing here that your friends and your coach can't set you straight with. The event itself is yours. It's a glorious chaos of sleeplessness, nervousness, pain, exhaustion, and exaltation. It will change you. 
We can give you advice and try to tell you what it will be like, but anything we say will pale before the reality of what your first marathon is. Here's my race day advice for the first-time marathoner. Enjoy it. Enjoy the atmosphere. Enjoy the sweat, the pain, the blood. Dig right in and roll around in it. It's your day. Exalt in it. You only get one first time. Of all the thousands of nuggets of marathon advice I can give, the only piece that matters is the advice to go ahead and start. Day one. Look out in the calendar and sign up for that event five or six months in the future. Then just strap yourself in and let your world be changed forever. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. There is that moment in a long race when you begin to have doubt. It creeps into your mind like a parasitic worm and begins to eat away at your resolve from the inside. Your body is in pain. Your system is exhausted. Your dinosaur brain is sending you messages of despair and hopelessness. This is the point where you can pull your shoulders upright, take a deep breath and let it out slowly, look your fear in its beady devil eyes and smile. That smile, that small curl of the lips will set you free. Because when you smile, you have made a decision to be content with your situation. You have accepted it. And with that acceptance comes serenity. In that moment, you are stronger than you have ever been. In that moment, you are indestructible. I will be taking my indestructible mind and body down to Raleigh to try to make the six-hour cutoff... <laughs> <laughs> at the Umstead Trail Marathon. Should be fun. Nice, easy stroll in the woods with a couple hundred friends. I wish Buddy could come. And that will be 12 marathons in 12 months. If you're in the area, come on by and let me buy you dinner on Saturday. I'll be stag again. My wife didn't want to join me, even though it's her birthday. I mean, what could be more fun than celebrating your birthday at a trail marathon? I'll never understand women. Thanks for the written and spoken words of encouragement over the last few weeks. I think you folks give me too much credit. You are the strong ones. I am just the noise in your head. So thanks for letting me kill some time with you. I'm going to change the format again probably at episode 300. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to hanker in to do some more funny pieces or something a bit more creative. I guess we'll find out when we get there. As you know, if you downloaded the Unicorns episode, I'm running Boston for the Liver Foundation. My dad is right now losing his battle to cancer, and it is what it is. I'm going to try to do Unicorns episodes in the off weeks between Run Run Live episodes, the core episodes. And if you don't want to listen to them, just delete them when they pop up. I won't be offended. My liver page, if you're interested in helping me out, is www.go.liverfoundation.org slash go to slash C-Y-K-T Russell if you want to pitch in. But enough about me. What about you? What are you going to do today to make this day your masterpiece? What are you going to do this year so that when you look back, it's epic? The snow is going to melt over the next few weeks and you'll have to crawl out of your hole and look for your shadow. And when that happens, you'll have to commit to four more weeks of epicness. And I will, maybe with a little limp and a grimace, see you out there. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT 
Russell. And as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.